Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. We just recorded an episode about the Ordovician period. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you you don't need to listen to that one to understand what we're going to talk about in this episode. But we did spend a lot of time discussing a certain period in Earth's ancient history Mm -hmm. that we look at through geology. We look at the various layers of sediment that have uh, accumulated on the Earth. We look at the chemical signatures from the past and try to piece together exactly what the world was like, what caused it to be like that, and what made it end, what ended that period, what catastrophic events ended that period in Earth's history and gave birth to a new age. So, inevitably, we end up looking at our own period of time. And what happens when we look at the age of humans as a geologic period? What indeed if uh, aliens in the distant future, (laughs) time travelers, what have you, travel to the Earth and find this world devoid of humans, but are able to look back through geology, through chemistry, and peer at our age? What would they make of it? Well, and I think it's a very interesting question because I think so often we are preoccupied with the past, mm-hmm. particularly when we look at the time scale. We just think about everything that has happened before us. We understand ways in which we are affecting the earth. Uh, global climate change is something that comes up quite a bit. But uh, as you say, I don't think that we have taken this stance before. We've tried to go out uh, 10,000 years from now and l- visit the geologic time scale and see what it would look like. And with the age of man, and this is what we're going to talk about today, this idea, this Anthropocene, this age of man that is replacing the current Holocene that we are in, this period of time um, that has been relatively stable in terms of climate and resources, and trying to take a look at how we are actually going to, how we are affecting the Earth and what it will look like uh, many years from now. And this is going to be kind of a duh statement to, to talk about because, you know, we all know this at some point, Homo sapiens were not the dominant species and we're not quite as successful as we are now, but there was a time uh, during life when Homo sapiens really had to be careful about the way that they conducted themselves because they could easily be a meal for a megafauna, for a large predator. Or uh, there were times in history where you've seen something called bottlenecks, and this is when the population, the Homo sapien population, went below 2,000 people, if you can imagine. Yeah, where the population dies down so far that the chances of the species continuing really diminishes. And then also you get into increasing uh, problems of uh, genetic diversity as well when the population begins to get down that low. And, of course, you've got circumstances during that time that's thought that there weren't as many resources available. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we take it for granted that Homo sapiens, you know, have always been strong in here and, and, and been the dominant force on Earth. But really, this is a fairly new, in, in the whole geologic timescale uh, view of things, this is a fairly new development. Yeah, because we're, as humans, we're still afraid of things. We're still afraid of sharks eating us. We're still afraid of of stray dogs biting us. We're afraid of diseases. We're afraid of the death that we haven't exactly figured out how to defeat yet. I mean, and and everything has come into this humans versus this, humans versus that uh, scenario. 
But we look back in the past, right, and there was a time when animals were a definite threat to humans. There was a time when disease was more of a threat. Now it's still a threat. Mm -hmm. But there were times when an outbreak of disease could potentially wipe out the species. And uh, today, to to many modern observers, you you might think, well, we basically have have it knocked, right? Outside of the chance that a shark might eat me, outside of the chance that a disease might topple some of us, humanity is here to stay, right? Yeah, humanity is here to stay, and you, you have to look at it this way, that when we began to hunt woolly mammoths, we began to change the landscape, um, you know, from ancient aqueducts to cloud seeding for Beijing Olympics to try to um, have better weather. Uh, we have been trying to alter our landscape. And geographers Earl Ellis and Navin Ramakuti argue that we are no longer disturbing natural ecosystems. Instead, we are now we now live in human systems with natural ecosystems embedded within them. Yeah, the mammoth thing is really interesting because generally when you start thinking about, well, okay, when did humans really start tinkering with things. Mm-hmm. You tend to think back 12,000 years to this, this turning point when we begin to, to develop agriculture because this, this allows a number of things to take place. We've discussed this before. Suddenly you're able to grow a surplus of food. You're able to stay in one spot. You're able to uh, devote certain members of society to specialist tasks, be that task the development of essentially the early sciences to culture, to religion, to star or navel gazing, Mm -hmm. uh, to fine-tuning the agricultural processes that society is depending on. The birth of the city, all of these things rise up from that turning point. But you go back uh, much farther in history, and you find that the uh, mammoth populations are dropping, in part because you have natural climate change taking place, but also mammoths are tasty. Mammoths are useful. Use every part of it, right? It's, Mm -hmm. It's a fabulous product. Early humans couldn't get enough of it. And so they were hunting it uh, to extinction. And without the mammoths around to graze and eat uh, the birch that grew, um, that kept everything kind of a a grassland, Mm -hmm. suddenly you have forests springing up, darker forests. Absorbing more light. Right. So you end up with a warmer climate because of that. So here already, due to the things humanity wants, the things that it feels it needs to combat in the world around it and take from the world around it, that contributes to changes in the planet. Yeah, and, and I guess some people would argue uh, that that was really the beginnings of when we began to alter the landscape. Um, you know, it was thought that it was the, the more agrarian societies, societies that cropped up 10,000 years ago, that that's when um, humans really began to change the landscape for better or worse. But you can point to this. You can point to woolly mammoths and the hunting of them uh, that had a direct correlation with how the environment changed. Um, so if you kind of fast forward a bit and you had, you know, to, to modern day, and you had mentioned um, extraterrestrial life forms, if they were to cruise by our planet, they would see a very human stratigraphical signal. And what I'm thinking of are the satellite photos of the Earth at night yes, uh, lit up by fossil fuel combustion. I mean, you could cruise past our planet and say, ah, there's something up. There's something going on there. Yeah, they're burning their past to create this present lit electric world of power and energy. And And in fact, as we've discussed before, as we're trying to figure out where extraterrestrial life may exist in the universe, we're looking for these same type of signals because we look to ourselves as the only model of intelligent life in the universe. It's the only one we have. So, mm-hmm. therefore, the simplest equation to follow is that what exists here would exist elsewhere if there is anything alive elsewhere. So we look for that same level of fossil fuel consumption, of energy uh, of energy consumption and energy output. 
Yeah, so it looks so so think about those satellite photos and think about the the fossil fuel combustion and the beautiful sort of fireworks display of light throughout the world. That actually has real time signatures in the Earth's sediment. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about this idea again that we are now in the age of man. And if you doubt this, uh there is a statistic out there that says that there will be a million person city built every ten days over the next eighty seven years. So you have to start to think about the implications of that. And we discussed in the Ordovician podcast this idea that when uh, when you live on the earth here, you just continue to build up layers and layers of sediment. So now we are building up these layers of human sediment. Yeah, and to see just a simple example of that, if you we've mentioned London in the past and how London has all these various levels of, uh, like walking down one street in London, particularly Long Street in London, you'll encounter bits of architecture from throughout that city's history. Mm-hmm. And if you dig down into the earth, you'll f- travel down through the layers of history for this one city. It's the same way that we look at geologic time. And, and we're trying to, d- to figure out exactly how future analysis of geologic time will look at this age of humans. Yeah, so we should probably talk about the Holocene period, because yes. this is what we have identified the period that we are in uh, up until about, I guess, the 90s when this idea of Anthropocene came onto the scene here. Yeah, so Earth was emerging from an ice age. So we had the end of a period of uh, of cold, entering a period of a summer, if you will, a very long summer, mm-hmm. in which uh, humans thrived. Yeah, so we have about something, what, 12,000 years now in this Holocene period. Mm-hmm. And uh, some scientists will say that they think that this era ended and they think they can pinpoint it to about 200 years ago with the advent of the steam engine. And this is according to Ken Caldera. He is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institute of Science in California. He says that steam engines allowed the extraction and transportation of coal, which ushered in the industrial age. So previous to this development, it would take... Uh, huge acts of nature to drastically alter the Earth's sediment. Yeah. You really can't overstate the importance of steam power for uh, human civilization. It affected our ability to travel around the world. It affected our ability, like you said, to change the the landscape around Mm -hmm. us. It uh, affected our ability to grow things. It souped up our ability to uh, depend on agriculture. It changed our ability to wage war on each other. I mean, it it really, uh, manufacturing, it affected every level of of, uh, human society and human culture. That's right. If you had to choose one thing that you would say hinged on that, that changed technology for better or worse going forward, I guess you could point to the steam engine. Yeah. Um, and uh, I actually wrote an article of, on how stuff works about uh, steam technology. So oh, you did? put yeah. steam technology, steam power into uh, howstuffworks.com search bar and you will find a, a, what I feel is a pretty good article that uh, goes through the, the history of it and how it really changed uh, the world as we know it. Yeah, and if you doubt this, uh, consider that there has been data retrieved from glacial ice cores, and it shows the beginning of a growth in the atmosphere at concentrations of several greenhouse gases, in particular uh, CO2 and CH4. And the data coincides with James Watt's invention of the steam engine in 1784. So that's just one human marker of these sort of uh, ways that we have scarred or shaped the earth. Think about fiber optics lining in the ocean floors, uh, manufactured materials like aluminum and steel. Uh, essentially, these are new. This is a new layer of human-made strata. Yeah, it's estimated that by 1995, at least 83 percent of the Earth's first land surface had been directly affected by humans. And that's everything from 
cutting down a forest and planting a bunch of crops mm-hmm. to erecting a city to turning what was formerly a, a grassland into asphalt to laying down cables to running power lines uh, across the, the wilderness. I mean, I mean, you name it. 83% of the world. Uh, pretty significant, mm-hmm. right? And these, or, Well, 83% of Earth's land. Right. Uh, but still, you still have uh, <laughs> some significant changes going on underneath the water as well. And then, again, these are sedimentary and geochemical signals that are exactly the kind that geologists use to mark where one period of Earth history ends and another begins. And in the BBC program, The Age We Made, geologist Jean Zalasiewicz actually shows a reporter where a railway cutting exposed a clear line in rocks made 180 million years ago. And this um, actually marked the Torresian extinction event in the early Jurassic when dinosaurs were beginning to dominate. And Zalasiewicz says that in a similar way, we will see clear marks in the rocks that will show us where one one uh, age was divided into another and, and where you can see the human handprint on the earth. Um, he's saying that the rocks of the Anthropocene would show an accumulation of novel chemicals like artificial PCBs, among many other things. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an important thing to mention. We're, we're chemically altering the world as well. It's not just we took a bunch of stone and a bunch of metals and we built a city out of it or that we lit up the night. Uh, chemically, we're changing what the Earth is. Yeah, and before we talk about how we, we've changed the Earth's chemistry, let's talk about humans as a force of nature. We talked about this idea of sediment um, being moved around, but again, it wasn't uh, you know previous to humans. It was really ice ages, super volcanoes, um, huge events that changed the landscape, uh, mass extinctions of animals. You know, again, this was something that we attributed to nature in the past. But now, again, with sediment changes, here is a very clear picture of how we are the largest force in the movement of sediment on our planet. And that is compared with what's moved by ice, wind, and rivers. And this is according to James Savitsky. He's an earth scientist at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He says that uh, that rivers carry 13 billion tons of sediment to the ocean, and we now mine 8 to 9 billion tons of coal and that by 2030, it's predicted that we will reach 13 billion tons of coal mining. And that does not include aggregate materials like gravel and sand, which is another 13 billion uh, tons, hydraulic cement and iron ore, both each another 2 billion tons. Yeah. On the point about water, as of 2005, humans had built so many dams that nearly six times as much water was held in storage as flowed freely in rivers. Right, and this is important because, again, you don't want necessarily your rivers to overflow into your cities, and that's why we try to control it. But it is another example of how we are sculpting the earth and changing it to meet our needs. And you cannot deny that there there is the hamper of humanity on the earth now. Right, I mean, it's, it's kind of the idea of a dammed river. Like, that is what we have done to the planet, the planet itself as a damned river, where, where the natural flow of things has been messed with so that we can get something we want out of it. Damned and not damned. Yes. Right, yeah. Uh, then we've got agriculture. We produce yes. uh, food for the 7 billion of us, and that's 40% of the Earth's surface that's used for production of crops and pastures. And this doesn't actually take into account how the land around it is also influenced by agriculture, whether it's runoff um, or the chemical trace of synthetic nitrogen. So again, think back to that example of the mammoths. Without the mammoths, forests sprang up, 
and change the atmosphere. Eventually, uh, humans get around to uh, knocking down a lot of those forests so that they can grow crops, and this is also going to have a huge effect on the atmosphere. Yeah, and I had read somewhere that the reason why some of this is is hard to get our heads around is because we have abstracted so many of what so, so much of what we do and how we see ourselves apart from animals mm-hmm. um, that we no longer see ourselves as animals, and this is just something that is an indirect process. Yes, we build cities, we build homes. Oh, by the way, you know we're we're taking away the habitats of certain creatures, and this is leading to extinction. Well, and then I, to a certain extent, I feel like people also look to animal models, and they're like, ah, well, a bird has a nest. Um, Ants build a colony. Mm -hmm. These are all just versions of what we're doing. But you you don't see in the animal world, you you don't see it to to the the extent that we carry it out, to the extent that it is is changing the planet. I mean, um, about the, really about the only... The only things that, as far as life goes, when, when you look back through geologic time, you see early emergence of organisms, that changes the atmosphere. That, that contributes to a huge change in the atmosphere. Um, and then you also see, as vegetation takes hold, that also has an atmospheric effect and also cuts down on the weathering that can take place on, on the planet. But outside of a lot of those early changes, like this is, this is the one. Like beavers were not changing the <laughs> landscape in a significant way. Leave it to the humans, right? Yeah, well, and I'm thinking, too, even something like the collapse of the honeybee colonies, which has been in the news a lot in the last five or so, actually ten years. Um, This is a great mystery. Now there are some ideas about the cause of it, and uh, they're pointing to pesticides, saying that this is changing the pesticides. Uh, are actually changing the behaviors of honeybees. And we already know that honeybees are central to the way that our ecosystem plays itself out. So, again, it's it's just problematic because these are indirect things that are happening. Um, but it, it's hard for us to, I think, get our heads around it and see it for the actual damage that it's doing to the land and to the ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, to say nothing of most of the various invasive species that we're having to worry about in the world today. Uh, a vast number of those can be laid at the feet of humans who have enab- either enabled one species to spread to an area uh, that it previously had no access to mm-hmm. or changes in the environment or in the, or in the atmosphere that, uh, that cause an animal to change from one uh, area to another. So. Well, and see, this is the this is the thing about the Anthropocene, and that I think the the main point that a lot of geologists and scientists are trying to make is that all of this is being captured. Mm-hmm. Um, it's being captured in sediment. It's being captured in chemical markers. So people will be able to look back and say, "Oh, okay, there were you know, there, the amount of pollen wasn't as present as it was in these areas," and you began to make this story for yourself of, okay, there could have been a collapse of the honeybee uh, colonies, or these animals were in this area when they shouldn't have been, or they became extinct in this area. So it's not just the fossil record, it's the chemical signatures. Um, We should probably take a break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about these chemical signatures, how we are changing the Earth's chemistry, and I promise you we'll have a a bit of good news in there, too, (laughs) eventually. All right, we're back, talking about uh, what humans have done to the planet. And I tell you, one one personal example that I ran into the other week keeps ringing in my my, my mind. I was at uh, the Desert Museum in Arizona, just mm-hmm. out, outside of Tucson. Really cool place. It's really not so much a museum as it is a botanical garden with animals. You get to see a lot of cool cacti, other modes of desert uh, vegetation. 
get to see really cool animals like the javelina, various lizards. There was a a coyote hiding there somewhere. But they also had little prairie dogs. I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they they were adorable. We happened to hit them just as they were coming out, and they were were looking around. So we were just really eating it up. And like, oh, they're so cute. They're amazing. Look Mm -hmm. at how they're watching, you know, observing the way that that some are watching out for hawks overhead, and the others are busy uh, feeding or seemingly snuggling with each other. It was uh, they're adorable creatures. Now, did they give you giant foam hammers to bump them in no, the head? No, they didn't. But but in a way, it was like a bonk to the head when other tourists showed up because there was one in particular where the only thing the guy can muster is he, he asked, I wonder what those taste like. You know, because, which which is a very kind of human thing to, to like your 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 only way of relating to this animal is to think what it might taste like and how it compares to other animals that you eat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a very narrow way of looking at the world. But the best though was another tourist wanders up, and it's like a father and a son. And at first, I'm like, oh, it's a father and a son. They're looking at uh, prairie dogs. It's nice. But the son, who's apparently, uh, he's older, I got the impression he was in the National Guard or in the military or something. And he starts telling his father how, oh, these things, they infest everything. They're just all over the base. We have to go out and kill them and all. And, and I wanted to, to shake them and say, say the prairie dogs are not the, the creatures infesting things. Like the humans are the creatures that are infesting things. Humans are the invasive species that have spread to every continent on the planet and have, as we're discussing here, drastically changed most of those continents. And uh, we're, we're working on the last one. They just give us time, right? <laughs> but uh, I, I doubt they would have, I would have probably ruined their vacation. Yeah, but I really wanted to say that, you know, because it's, it's, it, it all tends to, to wind up at our feet, you know? Yeah, but then there's this problem of that's been the dominant philosophy for humans. I mean, manifest destiny is, you know, something that, that, that arose um, when, when America was expanding, but that is, that's a perspective that most humans have taken is that we are going to dominate and we are going to bend nature to our will and how dare nature creep upon us. Uh, and we will try to, to uh, manipulate life for us at every single level that we can, you know, from, from DNA to cloud seeding. Yeah, and as human beings, <laughs> as we've discussed before, we're notoriously bad at judging or specifically acting on long-term risks. And that's just within our own lifetime. That's That comes down to, should I study for the exam tonight or should I go out and party? And then you end up going partying instead. But then when you, when you deal with, with much larger periods of time that span a whole multiple generations, it becomes even harder for us to actually act on it. And we end up, again, caught in this narrow perception of, my life and the things around me and the things I need to maintain this level of goodness. Well, I also feel like uh, on a technological level, we really are only beginning to understand the impact of what the last you know, 70, 80 years in technologies yeah. have, have brought to our feet. And I'm thinking uh, in particular this conundrum of synthetic nitrogen. Yes. Because synthetic nitrogen is something that we were able to begin to harness in the 1930s. It was in our atmosphere. We couldn't quite figure out how to manipulate it for our use. And then, lo and behold, a biochemist figured out how nitrogen could be taken out of the atmosphere and break it down with bacteria to create fertilizer. Yeah, particularly this is a man by the name of Fritz Haber, um, around 1900, young chemist in Germany. There's an excellent radio lab. Uh, segment titled "How Do You Solve a Problem Like Fritz Haber," and uh, <laughs> it's a fascinating story because, um, see, at this point in time, everyone is really starting to worry about how we're going to feed these growing populations, mm-hmm. and it continues to be a problem today. But at the time, it was getting pretty serious. How, how do you grow enough food to feed everyone? So Haber happens on a solution. 
Uh, again, he's experimenting, and he makes this breakthrough about how to pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere. Essentially, to borrow the term from Radiolab, how do you turn air into bread? Mm-hmm. You turn how to turn to, to basically make food out of thin air mm-hmm. and enable humanity to continue all these things that it's doing. And it's, of course, what's the, the dark side to the Fritz Haber story, as, as I'll leave Radiolab to explain it to you, is that he ends up uh, having a role in the creation of some particularly devastating uh, chemical agents in the Second World War. So go go listen to that when you get a chance. It's dark and insightful. But here's the thing, and that, that that's like, that's where the conundrum comes in. You have synthetic nitrogen harnessing it. You can use it for fertilizer. Mm-hmm. You can grow many more crops, feed many more people. But the problem is, is that now it's being leached into the soil. It's being leached into um, into the atmosphere. And when you have the combustion of fossil fuels with atmosphere nitrogen, that produces nitrogen oxides which have created basically a global nitrogen cycle, which is completely controlled by the human species. Yeah. And this, if if you doubt the hand of man on the world and its markers, you can look directly to this to say that we are a force of nature ourselves when we can control the nitrogen cycle on our planet. Yeah. Again, we're not just building things out of other things. We're altering the system itself. And And it's pretty terrifying when you start thinking of it in those terms. So then you have this problem of reactive nitrogen washing into the oceans and causing coastal dead zones. Uh, even the most remote areas of the world have isotopic markers in the layers of sediments in places like the Arctic, uh, pointing to increased amounts of human-engineered nitrogen. So, again, we've got the record here for, for all to see in 10,000 years from now, at least. So what can we do about it? What can we actually do at this point? And, and again, the, the big thing here, it's kind of like, building bases on the moon or exploring other planets or, or any any substantial human achievement, we've got to actually want to do it and have there, – there has to be the political will to get it done. But, yeah. but what could we do if we wanted to do something? Well, I mean, we have a couple of things up our sleeves, but I think one of the main things is that we have to have a perspective change. And, um, and I think this is why – some people are pushing for the adoption of this Anthropocene term because mm-hmm. they're saying that once you say, yes, this is the age of man, then people will become more responsible when they realize that on a geologic time scale that they are now responsible for the changes made to Earth. It's not just, oops, we did this and this happened. Um, and I'm thinking, too, that, that this is not just the long view, but as more and more technologies come online and people like Aubrey de Grey, the biogerontologist, who says that we could live to a thousand years, who says that the first person to reach the age of 500 has already been born, who can be maintained like a classic car, so to speak, mm-hmm. with all the different technologies, that this is coming online and that people will naturally begin hopefully, to adopt this long-view perspective. And right now, you know, we sort of quibble about, well, this is very expensive to bring in this technology that helps uh, for, you know, to ameliorate some of the problems that we have. But the fact of the matter is, is that we do have bioadaptive technologies that could render waste really a thing of the past. It reminds me of uh, the movie The Mission. Have you seen this? With uh, Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. Uh, at At the very end of it, there's a character who is, is having to come to terms with some arguably bad decisions that he made that had some, some horrible repercussions. And another character says to him, well, thus is the world. As if to say, hey, this is the world. We just have to live in it. Sometimes you've got to do bad stuff to live in this world. And he responds, uh, no, thus, thus is the world. Thus have I made it. Saying that the world that we're making excuses for is a world that we have increasingly created 
through our own mistakes, wrongdoings, and this attitude of, of living in a world where the rules are already set. Well, and I think largely we have lived that way. But again, I think that we're beginning to get a beat on what happens with technology over a 100-year period. Mm-hmm. And I think that, to me, the most amazing part of this story and perhaps the most uplifting, if we can use this information right, is that over the last 200 years, we have vastly changed the climate. Um, we've vastly changed the way our, our world looks and is sculpted. Mm-hmm. We could do the very same thing, but in ways that were intentional and that made sense for the long haul. Yeah, and there are a lot of people working on this. There are some fantastic designs just coming out all the time. We, we feature a lot of them on, like, the Facebook page and the Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be this kind of design for an, for an ecologically sound city or an ecologically sound household. Countless new technologies are always being dreamed up, if not actually developed. It's just to what extent are we willing to actually invest in them and make make the jump? Well, and, um, I mean, there are ideas like compostable cars and gadgets. Um, and really what we need to look toward is uh, 2050. And we've talked about this number mm-hmm. um, many, many times. But this is the no- this is the year that we will reach about 9.5 billion inhabitants. And, of course, where are we going to get the food? Where are we going to get the space? So we need to think about innovations that are tailored to the needs of the poorest and new plant varieties that can withstand climates that are harsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to develop technologies to recycle phosphorus. But now, of course, when you talk about new plants, you're talking about genetically modified organisms. So right, I it's, know. It's, There's give and take, right? Yeah, it's kind of like the bathtub. It's like a little more hot water because the, uh, the bath's too cold, a little more co- cold water because the bath is too hot. And then at what point does the water simply overflow? Well, the thing is, is that we, we are a self-aggrandizing species, right? Right. And this is where I think this works to our advantage, because if we really want to have an age of man and own this and, uh, and be within the fossil record or the geological timescale and say this is the age of man, we actually have to exist for a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, these periods are, are quite long. So if we begin, if we go at the rate that we are, and we were to use up um, a lot of the resources of Earth and, and make it not so that it's not very habitable, especially with so many people coming online in the year 2050, then we may not have this. We not even be able to point to this because we may not be yeah. alive. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, do you want it to be the age of man or do you want it to be the human event? This is mere blip in geologic time in which humans arrived on the scene changed the world around them, and then brought about their own extinction in pretty quick succession. Right. Right. Wouldn't it be lovely if 10,000 years from now someone could point to this age and say, ah, here's this crazy stuff that they were creating in the air, and then you can see all this other evidence in which they began to sort of tinker with that and, and create substances that, that worked better with the natural world. So there is hope, <laughs> if we want it. Um, but th- but there there's a lot of serious stuff on the table that we need to think about, really. And again, we need to, I, I, I do believe we need to start thinking about it as the age of man, as not this, not an age in which we live, but an age of us that we are dictating. And so we need to, we need to step up and, and make some changes. This is the, the tough love talk. Yeah. There's a great quote in Daniel Quinn's uh, Ishmael, which if any, if you're interested in any of these topics, I highly recommend reading that novel. He makes a really strong philosophical argument for most of this. And I believe this uh, book uh, arises from pretty much the same period as the um, as the idea that this age of man exists. 
Yeah, actually, let me mention, too, that uh, Age of Man was put forward by Paul J. Kretzen and, and Christian Schwagrel, and this was in the early 90s, in yeah. 1991. So, so roughly uh, there. But uh, the Daniel Quinn, Quinn quote uh, goes as follows. Man's destiny was to conquer and rule the world, and this is what he's done, almost. He hasn't quite made it, and it looks as though this may be his undoing. The problem is that man's conquest of the world has itself devastated the world. And in spite of all the mastery we've obtained, we don't have enough mastery to stop devastating the world or to repair the devastation we've already wrought. So there you go. We need the long view, people. Yeah. So um, it's it can be a bit depressing. When I read Ishmael, it was kind of a harrowing, depressing read because it deals a lot with what we're what we've done and what we might not have the will to do. But like all of it, humans are capable of so much. I mean, just look at what we've done to the earth. It's uh, most of it we've looked at it in a very negative light here, but it's still a tremendous amount of change. Imagine if we were able to work that back in another direction. Well, and imagine again too, if if you do live to be 500 or someone listening, well, perhaps you're the first person to live to be 500 years old. I feel that uh that our behaviors would change uh with that sort of longevity. Yeah. So if you're listening, future 500-year-old a person, uh, you know what to do. All right, well, let's uh, call over the robot here and see if he can uh, liven things up with a little listener mail. All right, we heard from Adam. Adam, of course, is the uh, chief happiness officer from happinesspledge.com mm-hmm. who travels around the world uh, doing good. And, uh, and we get to live vicariously through his yeah. uh, uh, missives to us. He sent us those cool hats at time. I know, yeah. and it's cold enough for me to begin wearing mine. I'm very excited. <laughs> Uh, but he wrote in about our MAPS episodes, and he says, Hi, guys. Uh, as you can imagine, MAPS are a daily part of my existence being on the road. I've had to read more than my fair share, and they range from good to horrible, usually depending on the level of infrastructure in the city. I'm in Kathmandu, Nepal at the moment, and you can see on the attached pictures that there are no street names on the map. Thus, all maps have schools, hospitals, hotels, restaurants, and other landmarks so you can navigate your way around. I think Robert has mentioned on the show that he's been to Costa Rica. Throughout Central America, there aren't really addresses. I remember trying to find a bus company's ticketing office, which listed its address as, quote, 200 meters south of the high school, 100 meters west of the church. A good sense of direction is necessary, <laughs> or command of Spanish to just ask locals, which is what I inevitably always did. As for the reading the maps of places uh, before going, I say it's the best. It's best to go and experience everything when you get there. Thanks again for the great podcast and take care. Indeed, uh, in Costa Rica, that was the one thing I, I definitely remember. They're talking about how the maps really don't work, and a lot of it ends up depending on landmarks, but not only current landmarks, but landmarks that haven't necessarily existed in like a decade or so. Like one of the big ones was like there's a Coca-Cola bottling plant, I believe, mm-hmm. in uh, the capital of uh, Costa Rica. And that was still used as a reference point, as a landmark, even though it is no longer there. Well, see, that's <laughs> what I think is really charming about Costa Rica. Yeah, yeah. Because, I don't know, I love I love that it's, time doesn't necessarily exist there. Nor do good roads. That's in the, <laughs> that roads are pretty atrocious. So maybe uh, yeah, that goes along with Especially the ones going up to Monteverde. Yeah. But, but I've heard the argument that the reason that those roads haven't been improved, because if you get a nice road going up to Monteverde, then how long before you have a casino in Monteverde? How long do you have to the, the whole, the, the very beauty of the place that everyone likes? It's kind of this mountain, kind of uh, hippie, a lot of expatriates living there. Quakers, too. Quakers. It's a really magical place, and I urge everyone to go. But the road up there is terrifying, but perhaps for a reason. And that would be no good for sloths, right? Yeah. Our friends the sloths. Yeah, they hate casinos. 
because they're just they're too slow on the on the one arm. I know, and so. no one wants to get behind a sloth at a casino. Yeah. Wait their turn. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, if you have anything you would like to share with us about your travels, about maps, or um, on the heels of this episode about humanity's impact on the on the world and uh, what we need to do going forward if we are really to own this idea that this is the age of man, that we're living in a world that, uh, that is sculpted from our selfish desires, let us know. You can uh, write us through various methods. You can find us on Tumblr, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You can find us on Facebook, where, again, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And on Twitter, we use the handle Blow the Mind. And you can also drop us a line at blowthemind@discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 